as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's this epic scene uh, in the in the closing pages of, of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the very last book, the last battle, uh, and the heroes of this story in this scene they, they find themselves reuniting in this in this great beautiful uh, garden, and uh, Lucy Pevensey, the youngest of the heroes, uh, she she kind of uh, hoists herself up to look over the wall of this garden. And as she's looking over the wall, she's kind of looking down at, at, at how the, the border of, of this garden, and she realizes, she's like, you know, the, the, the inside of the garden looks a lot bigger than, than, than the outside. And so she shares that, her discovery with uh, Mr. Tumnus, like one of her oldest friends there, and, and he's like, oh yeah, like for sure, the further up and the further in you go into the garden, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. And her mind's just kind of blown by that, and so she just kind of starts looking around at the garden more and more. She studies it, she ponders it, and she realizes that this garden is really not a garden uh, at all, but it's a whole world inside these, these small walls, a whole world with rivers and forests and lakes and mountains. And what she once thought was a small garden, and, and she shares that discovery to Mr. Tumnus, and, and he says, yes, it's kind of like an onion, except that as you continue to go in, each circle is larger than the last. Now, C.S. Lewis intended this, uh, this scene to be a creative picture of what, what heaven must be like. When for eternity, you'll just see with greater and greater perspective throughout eternity how much more beautiful God's glory is, how much more amazing his epic story of grace was, the deeper you go into it, the more you get acquainted with it, the larger and more grand that it gets. The gospel of Jesus Christ is just like that. The good news of God's amazing grace is just like that. That the further you press into how amazing God's grace is, the bigger and truer and more beautiful it gets. The further you press into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the more it just begins to fill your vision of the world, the more it begins to overflow the chambers of your heart. Inexhaustible. King David, King David, the great psalmist, he knew this. I mean, this dude was a musician, a poet. He wrote most of the Psalms, he was a master wordsmith that normally had no problem waxing eloquently when it came to describing the glories of God. And in Psalm 139, all he can think of to say is, it's too wonderful. It's too wonderful. He's just overwhelmed. The Apostle Paul, the original OG church planner, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he describes the grace of God in Christ as unsearchable riches they're inexhaustible they're without end without border 
And so what, what I want us to do in this new teaching is I want us to plunge into these depths, those depths, the depths of God's grace. And so we're going to begin our new teaching series called Amazing Grace. What is so amazing about the doctrines of grace? We're going to walk through different parts of the Bible storyline over the next few weeks and look at the amazing grace of God from five different angles with what's historically been known as the five doctrines of grace or five points of Calvinism or Reformed theology. And these doctrines, these doctrines which might be new to some of us throughout this series are important to us as a church. They're really important to us as a church and they should be important to all of us because they describe to us the uh, just unbelievable beauties of God's grace. You know what one of the biggest threats to the health of our church is? I think one of the biggest health to the threat or one of the biggest threats to the health of our church is, is, is not so much like skeptical or atheistic beliefs or even like wrong doctrines, but weak doctrine. There's a sort of laziness and apathy with how we talk about theology and doctrine in the Western church today that you just don't see in other previous centuries in the church. All theology is is just the study of God's nature and work according to the Scriptures. Like, how could we not want, want more of that? I mean, we'll learn the lyrics to our favorite songs. We'll study the stock market or political news. We'll, we'll learn the backstories of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll try and figure out how all these new characters and This Is Us fit together. When it comes to studying the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Lord our God Almighty, sometimes we just go, eh. There's this appalling apathy there. But doctrine matters. Theology matters. It matters because you can't worship God without theology. If theology is just the study of knowing God's nature and character, like you can't really worship God without theology. Because theology is just, just about knowing Him. Like if you're going to know Him, if you're going to love Him and worship Him, then you need to know things about Him. You need to learn about Him. Like if I, if I told you that I loved my wife's beautiful short curly hair and how it just bounces around when she does these cartwheels, you might think that's cute and endearing unless you actually know my wife because she actually has beautiful, long, straight hair and she can't even do a cartwheel, <laughs> which I happen to find endearing. Sorry, love. <laughs> and so with a, just a genuine desire for us to maybe get acquainted with the grace of God in like a fresh way, in a deeper way, we're going to pour over the scriptures over the next few weeks to look at the doctrines of grace. And the first doctrine of grace that we're going to go through this morning really sets the stage for why we need grace in the first place. The doctrine of total depravity as the church theologians in history have called it total depravity this is the biblical teaching that we are born as totally guilty totally corrupted and totally 
helpless sinners in desperate need of God's grace. Which I know kind of sounds like a downer. But spoiler alert, if we want to really understand just the beauty and glory of God's grace, then we need to first wrestle with the gravity of our sin. The more we do that, the more beautiful and amazing God's grace can be, the more thankful we can be and appreciative of his, of his mercy. So here's how Paul articulates this in Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 12. We're going to be jumping around to different scriptures today, but in, in Romans 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sin. So what does this tell us, this verse? This verse tells us that because of the fall, because of the fall in Genesis 3, like, like what Oscar kind of walked us through in our prayer of confession, when sin entered uh, uh, humanity through our first parents, Death spread because all men sinned. This tells us that because of the fall, we are all now sinners by nature. It's part of who we are. We're born into this world in sin, depraved. Every human being is wholly corrupt and totally depraved. Now, some, 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 some might think, like, well, that's not fair, right? That's not fair. I didn't rebel against God. Adam did. But when we say that, that's sort of like our, our hyper-individualistic Western minds at play because the, 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 they kind of got this in, in ancient cultures. But, but here, when the Bible, you'll notice in that verse, the Bible says that there's some deep, mysterious connection that all of humanity has with Adam. Theologians consider him the, the, our federal head, the head of humanity. To where when he sinned, we all sinned. It doesn't say when he sinned that, that we're affected by his sin. It says when he sinned in some mysterious way, we all actively sinned. Plus, let's be honest. We know, like we're not perfect ourselves probably would have made the same mistake under the same circumstances. Earlier in the book of Romans, Romans 3.23, this famous verse that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, some of the first words that come out of a child's mouth after mama and dada are no. Or maybe mine. Right? Right? You don't have to teach kids selfishness and sinfulness. We learn defiance and selfishness at an early age. Like I've heard preachers uh, talk about how if you want evidence of total depravity, you just got to look at a small child. But man, I've got three kids, and I've learned that if I want evidence of total depravity, I just need to look at my own heart as a parent of small children. I love my children. I love them more than anything, but the challenges of parenting have revealed for me just the depths of my impatience, my discontentment, my, my anger in my heart that I didn't even know was there. 
We are sinners by nature, from beginning to end. And we are also sinners by choice. By choice. The first point I want us to, to look at is how we are totally guilty and corrupted. Totally guilty and corrupted, as we just read in these verses. Now there's a scene in uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, which is obviously the best Terminator, <laughs> if you've seen it. But it's what, the, the story of Terminator 2, if you're not familiar with it, there's this young boy, John Connor, uh, and this, this, this robot, that um, this Terminator, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, is sent from the future uh, back into what is then the present time to protect John Connor. Uh, and so John Connor, this little boy, becomes friends with this robot from the future. All right? Follow me here. <laughs> There's this one scene where uh, John Connor, as a young boy, is watching these kids in a fight. And he turns to the Terminator that was sent to protect him. And, and he asks this, this Terminator, he says, we're not going to make it, are we, like in the future? People, humans, we're not going to make it in the future, are, are we, since he comes from the future? And the Terminator's answer is he just goes, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. It's in your nature to destroy yourselves. And man, that's a great cinematic summary of the doctrine of total depravity. It is in our nature to destroy ourselves, to destroy the world, to destroy each other. That, here's how Paul describes human nature, our human nature before Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're talking about Satan. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's our, our sinful pride, our, our sinful desires, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul says, look, this is who we are by nature. We are, verse 1, spiritually dead. We are, verse 3, children of wrath. We are cosmic rebels without a cause. Before the face of God, even our best deeds fall short, are incomplete, come with the wrong motives. And so the Bible says we're guilty and deserving of wrath. Now, I know that might sound a little aggressive and like kind of a downer. And a skeptic here might be thinking, like, you know, I don't really buy into this whole total depravity thing because I know some unbelievers who are pretty great. And I also know some believers who are pretty awful. Me too. <laughs> Me too, on both accounts. But this is where it's helpful for us to wrap our minds around the holiness of God. To do our best to wrap our minds about God's nature and His holiness. Because when we try to compare ourselves with each other, and try to compare others with us, 
I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll always have ourselves and like our favorite people like end up on top because you can always find someone worse than you, right? But man, when we wrap our minds around the holiness of God, you know what God's holiness is? It's, we're talking his otherness. His, his godness, holy means set apart. It's, it's that there's this infinite qualitative difference between him and us. That's why uh, Samuel in the Old Testament cries out, there is none like the Lord, for there is none besides you. In other words, there's, there's no higher reality or virtue that God has to conform to. There's no, like most of us don't meet the standards that we place for ourselves, right? We're always trying to improve. We're always trying to get, like for God, there's no higher reality, no higher vir- virtue by which he has to conform. There's no higher scale that he needs to be measured by. He doesn't just set some standard. He is the standard. Everything in us that has this sense of, of man, these, some things in this world are just not right. It's because those things have spun out of God's intended plan. They're against his nature, against his character. The reason there is something in us that says that's not right is because there's, there's something in us that knows there's some perfect standard of truth of goodness, of beauty. God is the source of that. He's the source. He's the standard. Now, why does it, all of this matter? It's because when you start there, you can begin to understand that regardless of how high you stand above your peers in virtue, you will always fall short from the glory of God. A sinner in desperate need of grace. If you want a good indicator of how much your sin is really a problem, about the seriousness of our sin, then just consider the seriousness of God's solution to our sin. What did our sin require? What did our sin require? to be remedied, the blood of the Son of God. Think about how God used death, the most final thing that we all fear. God used death to defeat death. The death of His Son nailed to a cross. If that's the solution, if that's the solution, then then our sin must be unimaginable. The offense of our sin, the gravity of our sin, the weight of our sin must be unimaginable if that's what it costs, the death of the Son of God. And we tend to think we, we aren't all that bad. But that defensiveness might be the most damning proof of our total depravity before a holy and righteous God. And just to be clear, 
Total depravity does not mean utter depravity. It doesn't mean we're the worst that we could possibly be. Like Romans 2 says that because all humans bear the image of God, whether you're a believer or not, we still all have some incredible capacity for knowing right and wrong, for fighting injustice, for contributing to human flourishing. That's why you'll have on the spectrum, like some people who, who aren't or who are followers of Jesus that, 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 that maybe are kind of like immature in their, in their character uh, at a certain point in time. And you'll have, you'll have others who, who aren't believers uh, that are, are, are just nailing it in terms of justice, human flourishing, doing good to their fellow man. That's why there are people like the Good Samaritan who was not a believer but used by Jesus in a parable as an example of what it looks like to love and serve others well. And he used this outsider, this unbeliever, as a marker to show the self-righteous Pharisees what they should be like. Unbelievers can be good parents, good friends, good neighbors, good employees, by the common grace of God to all people. Because we're all made in the image of God. And so we do have, into some sense, a capacity for some amazing things in terms of truth, goodness, and beauty. But total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we possibly can be. What it means is that sin infects every aspect of our humanity. Sin's damage is total. Sin not only taints the things that we do, but also how we think, how we feel, what we value most, our desires and affections. Australian theologian Michael Byrd, he put it this way. He said, The point affirmed in total depravity is not a denial of this human capacity for good, but rather it is an affirmation that sin totally permeates our intellect, wills, and hearts. There is no cavern of our mind, no recessives of our soul, no room of our heart, that is not infected with the deadly virus of sin. Totally guilty. Totally corrupted. Now, if that's our dilemma with this doctrine, where can we get help? Well, bad news continues, (laughs) is that we're totally helpless. In and of ourselves, in and of ourselves, we're, we're, we're totally helpless. I mean, read these verses in Ephesians 2 again. In, in, in Ephesians 2, it says, you were dead in the trespasses and, and sins. We were dead, spiritually dead. And then he, Paul double downs with that language in verses 4 and 5 when he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Christianity is less like Jesus throwing you a life raft in the sea of eternity 
and you having to reach out and grab it, and it's more like you being dead at the bottom of the sea and needing someone to reach down, pick you up, and quicken you to new life. When the scriptures talk about us being dead in our trespasses, it's talking about us being spiritually dead. The spiritual death usually, I mean, it will eventually lead to physical death, but, but it's saying that now, even as you live and breathe and walk on this earth, like we are dead in our trespasses, spiritually dead. Think about how lifeless a physical dead body is. Paul is saying, in, in, in some sense, in a similar way, you are spiritually dead because of your sin nature. Tim Keller talks about how there are parallels to being physically dead and spiritually dead in Paul's language. Like, like with a physically dead person, a physically dead person no longer can use their senses, right? A physically dead person can't feel around, can't look around, can't hear anything, can't smell anything. So a dead person, a physically dead person, clearly has no idea what's going on around them. In the same way, Keller says, a spiritually dead person, a spiritually dead person means, mean, means that you're, you're blind and deaf to spiritual realities. You're unresponsive to the gospel. And everything else becomes more interesting to you than real spiritual truth. The news, social media, your daily concerns and your stresses become your ultimate standard of truth, goodness, and beauty rather than the weight of spiritual realities. We also see our helplessness spelled out in places like John chapter 3. When Jesus says that in our depraved state, we love the darkness and we hate the light. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. This is talking about Jesus and the gospel. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. So apart from the grace of Jesus, we aren't neutral when the truth of light comes in front of us. We run from it. We resist it. That's what the verses say. People whose nature are in darkness run from the light. So we're helpless, we're, we're, we're dead in our sins, we're spiritually dead, we repel all that is from the kingdom of light, we run from it. So number three, this is why we're in total need of grace. We're in total need of grace. What hope does a dead person have? You can't work your way to resurrection. You need divine help. You need supernatural help. You need help from the outside in the strictest sense of that word. From a holy one. There's another scene in the Chronicles of Narnia 
where Eustace, this, who's this character, he's like the cousin of the Pevensey kids. He, he's this character that you just like love to hate if you've read the stories. He's spoiled, he's whiny, he's greedy. A lot like us, a lot like me. He gets himself into this problem uh, where, where he, uh, I'll, I'll spare the details, but he basically gets in this problem where uh, the, this enchanted uh, sort of cave turns him into a, a dragon because he's putting his hands where they don't belong. And so he turns into this dragon, which honestly sounds pretty rad. <laughs> Except he hates it. He can't talk. He's lonely, he's miserable, and he just wants to be a boy again. Every time he tries to shred the dragon skin off of himself, he just uncovers another layer of dragon skin underneath. And he tries to shed that skin almost to, only to reveal a, another layer under, under that one. And that happens again and again and again. He's trying to, to shed these scales and, and he just, there's just more scales underneath. And it's only when Aslan the lion, the Christ figure in the epic story, it's only when Aslan the lion claws into these dragon scales to peel them off that the scales finally peel away. In the same way, when we find ourselves trying to make sense of and trying to fix the brokenness we sense in our hearts with anything other than surrender to Jesus, we're just moving from one functional Savior to the next functional Savior to the next functional Savior, and it never seems to work, never seems to satisfy. Just more scales underneath. I think this illustrates well what Paul was describing in Ephesians 2. I want you to, let, let, let's read Ephesians 2 again, but this time let's read all five verses. Beginning in verse 1, again, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, this is, this is all of us, all of our nature. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does it say in verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Pulled us up from the bottom of the sea. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Those two words, but God, in verse 4, might be the most comforting two words in all the scriptures. They tell us that our only hope, our only hope in our deadness is God's mercy and grace, and He gives it. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive in Jesus. You and I were dead in our sins, totally helpless, totally corrupt, totally guilty, no spiritual life at all, but God, when he looked at at your darkened and decayed and crumbling stone-covered heart said, I want that. I want this royal mess and I want to make it alive. I'll exchange my life for it. The Lord says, that is how you got saved. If you know Jesus, that's how you got saved. You were helpless. You were without hope. And then in his grace, Jesus came. He stepped in. You were dead, so he had to step in. You didn't reach out for him. He reached down to you. He took initiative. He quickened your soul. He came down. He lived perfectly. He died in your place, was buried in your place for you, and then he rose in triumphant victory over evil, sin, and death and said, hey, this victory also for you. You were once a child of wrath, a rebel without a cause. But God, but God, instead of pouring out his wrath on you, offers the richness of his mercy in his son Jesus, a new life, with him and a mission to live for. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Starts off with some really bad news. We're totally corrupt. We're totally guilty. Totally helpless. In total need of grace. But ends with the good news that our hearts yearn for in the deepest center of our hearts. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you. So what should this, this doctrine, what should this doctrine of total depravity, what should this produce in us? But, well, we, 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 we've, we've talked a lot about uh, sort of like the, just the, the theory of total depravity and, and, and why it's beautiful and why it matters. But not, not, like, let's bring this into the day-to-day. Let's bring this to right now and this hour with our lives. To, to the, like, like other than just wooing us and causing us to stand in awe and reverence and, 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 and just worship him, which we should do, the doctrine of depravity should, should first produce in us a heart for holiness. A heart for holiness. Number one, a heart for holiness. Once you understand the depravity of your former nature, once you really understand how you were totally depraved, then once you meet Jesus, <laughs> once you meet Jesus and you have a new life in Christ, your affections and your thoughts and your desires are no longer captive to sin. 
no longer captive to sin. Now you're free to walk in that newness of life. Notice, notice Paul says you were, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked in those trespasses and sins. You lived out the, the, in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. But God, that was before, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he's now made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Later on in verse 10, he talks about how he's created us for his workmanship. God's not done with us. And so if, if, you, if, if, if you've really understood the weight of your sin, how much it was dragging you down, how much you were spiritually dead, and if you've truly tasted new life in Christ, then man, you're going to have a heart and desire to run and grow in holiness. Now you're free to walk in that newness of life. You're not going to do it perfectly, but you'll desire to. Not because you have to, but because you get to. You're free to. You see, when you're spiritually dead in your sin, you, you don't have, I mean, that's your nature. Like, you can't choose anything other than sin. But man, when you're alive in Christ, you're no longer spiritually dead. Why would you go back to those chains? Why would you go back to the coffin? Why would you hang out at the bottom of the sea when you've been brought to the surface to walk in newness of life? Again, you won't do it perfectly, but you'll still do it nonetheless. You'll have a desire to grow in holiness. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, he talks about this tension when he said, a Christian man or for, 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 for this statement, a Christian woman, a Christian man or woman is both righteous and a sinner, holy and profane, an enemy of God in, in some sense, and yet a child of God. He's got this old Latin phrase that was popularized, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and righteous before God, but still battling sin and sometimes failing. And look, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that'll be your experience until the day that you die. You'll be simultaneously justified and righteous before God, but you'll be battling sin and sometimes you'll fail. But man, with the Spirit's help, you'll grow in holiness. You'll grow in holiness. You'll fail less. Your justification, your righteousness will bear fruit more. It's having this heart that says, look, I know I'm not perfect, but the scales have shed. And now by the grace of God, I'm going to live with my new nature. I'm going to press into that. I'm going to walk in that. We are no longer totally depraved. Now we have hope and grace to grow in holiness. And so I have no excuse to go back to those chains because I'm free now. I'm free now. I might sin every now and then, but I'm no longer captive to my sin. I'm free to follow Jesus. Next, one of the things that the doctrine of total depravity should produce in us, not just a heart for holiness, but also a posture of humility. 
a posture of humility. And this happens when the, knowing the doctrine of, of de, depra, total depravity goes from your head and gets down into your heart. If it stays up here in your head, then you might use that as a weapon to make yourself feel better than everyone else around you. Man, when it gets down into your heart, you have this posture of humility. Because when we understand the depravity of man and the grace of God that was shown to us, then we should think both humbly about ourselves and graciously toward others. You should have a heart free of hypocrisy. Jesus tells a parable that illustrates this in Luke chapter 18. It's a famous parable. Let's read verse, Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. It says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. God, thank you that I'm not like that other guy. But verse 13 says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Man, if you get, if you get how totally depraved you once were, and how the remedy for that was purely by the rich mercy and grace of God, not because you were smart enough to figure it out, not because you swam hard enough to the life raft, but because God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, gave you freely what you don't and never deserved, man, that humbles you. You know that you're entitled to nothing, but you've been given everything. And you want others to get in on that too. You want others to get in on that too. So it humbles you, but it also gives you a gracious posture towards others, a a, a posture of humility. The last thing that the doctrine of total depravity produces in us, and this is not an exhaustive list, but for us this morning, the last thing I want us to see is that it produces in us a hope in Christ alone. A hope in Christ alone. The only person that was born without a hint of depravity was our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus never sinned, yet he hung on a cross in our place for our sins. 
He didn't have a hint of depravity, yet he received the worst of ours. He was depraved or betrayed, rejected, ridiculed, spit on, blindfolded, beaten, nailed, then lifted, hoisted up to hang on a cross, bearing the lion's share of our depravity. And there on the cross, he absorbed. He absorbed as a propitiation. He absorbed the full, the righteous wrath of God in our place, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Why? For amazing grace. For amazing grace. Let's close by reading this one verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came for the depraved. He came for me. He came for you. For those who would never measure up, he gave his life to save a wretch like me. Marvel at that. Marvel at that. Doctrine of total depravity is not some finer point of theology to be left in some systematic theology collecting dust on your shelf. It is a doctrine that reveals how beautiful God's grace is. How amazing it is. Marvel at it. Delight in it. Thank God for this amazing grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.